If you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know that we've been uh, working off of a, kind of a launch point, the Lord's Prayer. We saw in verse 13 this idea of temptation, and that left us to think about the idea of how do we trust God when it comes to temptation. And then last week we saw in James chapter 1, 13 through 16, how do we diagnose temptation? Meaning, where does it come from, and how does it work in our life? We saw that, and maybe you were able to track through that the way that you react to things, the unique temptations that you face. And we said the temptation, it doesn't mean it's bad. What temptation is, is it simply brings out what's in you already, how you're oriented, what you think about, what you value. And this morning, what we'd like to do is start on three weeks in which we have a series just called Trust God. And the beauty about that specific title is that that's the answer. That fundamentally is it. You know, when it comes to Christianity, uh, we all summarize Christianity in different ideas in our mind. Some people have the idea of performance. Some people think they've got to perform for God, for God to be on their side. Some people think about Christianity like obedience. And that's absolutely true. But fundamentally, Christianity, when you dig down to the bottom of it, when you pull away the layers, when you scratch to the core, it's really about trusting God. That's really what it is. And you see, you and I want to trust something. We all want to trust something. Since we're mortals, it's baked into our being. You're looking to trust something, someone to put your hope in, put your reliance on. That's really faith. That's the idea. And what we'd like you to consider this morning is, is that temptation is God's proving ground. It's the idea of, it's the proving, it's the proof. Find out what you're made of, and if you pay attention, you'll find your heart latching on to something you can trust. Now, the beauty of that is, is when you trust the Lord, then you walk by faith. The problem is, is that I and you often trust ourselves. We trust our own mentality. We put our hope in relationships, material possessions. Uh, If you think about it like this, it's almost like the eye of Sauron. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan here, I won't call for a show of hands, but it's almost as if, like your soul, it's like searching the land for something to trust. Like Sauron is searching for the ring. And temptation is when you land on something that you think will deliver. And God says it won't. Temptation, this will be my joy. There. surface. Now this morning what we're going to do is we're going to walk through, uh, just scratching the surface, believe me, on how the enemy of our souls enters into this. Because we talked about this last week, kind of the diagnosis. And what I want you to understand is, is that temptation... It needs to be met with trust. We've already covered that a bit. But I'd like to say it a little differently. I'd like to enter into an exercise with me. 
I think that we could say clearly that when it comes to our discernment, discernment is to the mind what trust is to the soul. Think about that. Discernment to the mind is what trust is to the soul. I'd like you to look at something now. Give the impression of something. There's going to be on the screen a, a face. I want you to think about what do you see? Do you see a person? Do you see a living person? No. You say you see a person, but it's an optical illusion. In one moment you can see face forward, and another moment you can see from the side. There's two images in one. Now, you probably see this stuff and do what I do. Well, that's pretty cool. Wow. Interesting. Neat. See, your discernment kicks in and says that's not what a human looks like. So you discern, and in your mind, you read, that's not a real person. I know what a person looks like. That's not it. It must be an optical illusion. And then you sift through your mind, and you go, in one sense, you go, oh, that's from this side. And in another sense, you go, oh, that's from the front. And discernment to your mind kicks in. Another picture. Well, what do you see when you look up at this? One moment you see a butterfly. Another moment you see two faces. You see how discernment to your mind kicks in. Your mind sees something, then you start discerning. And you go, wow, that looks like a butterfly. And then you look a little closer, you go, wow, that looks like two faces. It's an optical illusion. And you can pull apart what the optical illusion is because you know what the forms in the picture really are and what they represent. Now, I'd like you to think about this. When it comes to temptation, trust is to temptation what discernment is to your mind. You see, when you trust the Lord and a temptation comes up, you can discern that. You can think it through and go, that's not as valuable as I, my soul would like me to think. And so you bring it with faith and you start saying, no, God says this about this situation. God says this about where my joy should be. God says this about how I should act. God says this about how I should pray. And so you trust what he says so that you don't give in to the temptation. See, the temptation is always trying to, as we talked about last week, entice you and lure you. But when it's met with faith, you're strengthened in your walk. Because you recognize that that thing that's being offered is not where your joy is going to be residing. It's important for you to get that principle. And that's why it's incredibly important to build up your trust in God. Now, what's interesting about this is in our passage today, if you're over in Luke chapter 4, we're going to walk through some verses this morning. We're only going to get a couple uh, verses in. Uh, but we're going to look at this and how specifically this relates to Christ. So if you're in Luke chapter 4, we're going to see what this looks like in the life of Christ. And you're going to find out today and over the next few weeks, there are three particular categories that temptation always functions in in your life. And how do I know that? I know that because that's what the enemy came with with Christ. 
And I know that as we look across the landscape of Scripture, these three categories are always involved with temptation. Either one exclusively or one with other mixtures of the other two involved. And so this morning we're going to look at the one and we're really going to set up the rest of the teaching for our time together. So if you look over to Luke chapter 4, it's on the screen. If you don't have your Bible with you, encourage you to bring your Bible. But this is what it says in the first four verses of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, if we are going to summarize what this temptation is really about, if we are to boil it down as it relates to what the temptation is, I would say the temptation relates to the concept of comfort. I think that's what he's being tempted in. Comfort. You could say another word. You could say a phrase, actually, the will of God. Another choosing the will of God over your self-will. But that fundamental idea of comfort, I think, sits appropriately in the passage. And if you'd be honest with yourself, this is exactly where you get tempted at times. You get tempted by comfort. You want ease. You want things handed to you, given to you. You want to be pampered, you could say. Uh, what it looks like in our life is very, very different than what it looks like in the life of Christ and in this context. But nevertheless, the idea to be deceived, to see that your comfort comes from some material possession, maybe some relationship, some way that you can receive the comfort that really is going to satisfy you through something other than God. I think that's what's happening here. In the life of Jesus Christ. And the enemy is trying to come in and say, no, this is a shortcut. And what he's trying to do is deceive Christ. It's not much different than a story I read about a, a guard who is down at the southern border. Stationed at his usual post and a guy comes in on a bike. And he has two bags of sand on his shoulders. And the guy goes, what are you doing with those those bags, what's in those? The guy says, full of sand. And he goes, oh, full of sand. My eye, they're full of sand. Get off the bike. Takes the bags off his shoulders, tears into the bags. Finds sand. He says, ah, oh, this, this has got to be a trick. Takes the guy, holds him overnight. His name was Juan, by the way. Holds him overnight. He says, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Took the sand and had it sent out to a laboratory. What is this stuff in the bag? It looks like sand, but it can't be sand. Lab came back, sand. He was embarrassed. One was like, ah, okay. Got him some more bags, put the sand back in. Got on his bike, put the bags on top of his shoulders. One drove away on the bike. Next day, shows up again. Bags of sand on his shoulders. He says, what's in the bags? Sand. I don't believe it for a second. Let me see those things. Tears into them. This happens. No kidding. 
off and on for three years. For three years. It's driving the, the guard crazy. He knows there can't be sand in those bags. So one day he sees the guy down in a cantina in Mexico. He sees him and says, listen, I don't work that shift anymore. I haven't seen you in a couple months. But I got to ask you, it's killing me. It's been keeping me up at night. What in the world are you smuggling? Because I know you are, but I can't catch you. Juan takes a sip of his, of his drink and he said, bicycles. <laughs> he was smuggling bicycles. The sand was there just to make the guard think he's bringing something else in. That's the kind of temptation that we have sometimes that we, we think that there's all these tricky different ways that the enemy is trying to get us. You know, really, when you boil down, if you look at your life and what you're tempted with, you're tempted with comfort. Why don't my kids act like that? I wish they'd act differently. Why? Underneath that desire. Sometimes I'll admit, there's a good parent wanting your kid to act right. But very often, I got seven kids. Very often is you want your life to be easy. That's why you get mad. See, when you scrape this away, you find at the bottom of this is comfort. Why is it that the job you get upset? Very often you'll find it's because you don't deserve this. You deserve something more. You deserve comfort. That temptation, that thing that's in you that comes out, lives in that category of, of comfort. We've got to ask ourselves a deeper question as we start walking through this. If it's true that we're tempted in comfort, and the premise of what I'm saying is true, that the enemy's coming after Christ in comfort, I think that there's a question that stands behind this passage. Um, maybe you've asked it before. But I ask questions like this, as I've told you all the time. I, I think it's really good to ask questions like this. I ask this question, is, uh, why did Jesus even do this? If you know anything about the Judean wilderness, and by the way, the group that we're taking in November is going to find out, uh, it's not a place you want to hang out. The context is Jesus has been baptized, and in the specific verse here you've read this morning with me, is that the Holy Spirit leads Christ into the wilderness. Now the wilderness uh, had one thing going for it, uh, rocks and dirt, that's about it. It was not a place you want to hang out. And yet the Spirit of God is leading Christ into the wilderness. In other words, putting him in the crosshairs of the enemy. Now, and some people would like for you to believe, for me to believe, that if you just pray the enemy away, if you bind Satan, he'll go away. But that doesn't work really good, that theology, when it comes to the Spirit leading Christ into the crosshairs of the enemy. And so I've got to ask myself this question. Why does Jesus even do this? Why does he go through these things? And so before we pick apart the idea of comfort, we have to think about that the Spirit of God is in intentionally putting Christ in this. And if we know anything about Christ, we know it's for our good that he's here. But how particularly for our good? So let's take a wide angle on this. I think he's being led into the wilderness because one day Adam was in a garden and Adam failed to trust. 
Adam failed to trust. You see, Jesus is very intentional. He's repairing the damage that occurred at the very beginning. Remember we talked about from James, that process of being deceived. The idea of when desire conceived and it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. One of the exhibits we used was exhibit A, Adam. Adam failed to trust, and because he failed to trust God, and he trusted himself, the eye of Sauron, you could say, landed on him. Who should I trust? Me. Because he wanted to be the creator, not the creation. We've talked about this before. There's something that happened. Something that happened to you. See, you were affected by that. When Adam failed to trust, that meant that everybody after Adam would be born with this inclination to trust yourself. To not trust God. To trust maybe material possessions. To trust even in the Old Testament, and some certainly, they look different in the New, but idols are everywhere. To trust something other than God. And because he failed to trust, you and I failed to trust. Now somebody in the back row might put up your hand and say, wait a minute. Are you telling me I'm responsible for what Adam did? I'm not telling you that. Adam's responsible. You're responsible. But from your experience, do you trust God? Do you run to God? Do you naturally, are you naturally inclined to say, God, I trust you over myself? No. That shows something's deeply flawed in you, deeply flawed in me. Paul speaks about this in Romans 5.12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, then death reigned through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Spread to all men because all sinned. So that idea of you sin, I sin. In other words, sin means I don't trust God. I don't rely on God. I don't put my hope in God. I don't have faith in God. You can say it 20 different ways, but that's what it really is. See, sin is trusting something other than what should be trusted, namely God. And that's exactly what Adam did. Later on in that passage, Romans 5, 18 through 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so that one act of righteousness needs leads to justification and life for all men. So as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So the first Adam failed to trust, but Jesus is called what? The second Adam. In other words, as Jesus is moving through his life, he is repairing the damage that Adam created. In other words, he's trusting as Adam should have trust. So Jesus finds himself in the Judean wilderness Because Adam failed in the garden. And this is incredibly critical that Jesus Christ specifically, that he passes the test. Because when the enemy came to Adam, he folded like a cheap suit. So the question now hangs in the balance. Act as if you've never read the passage. What is Jesus going to do? When the enemy comes... The enemy of your soul, of my soul, the enemy who can't stand anyone made in the image of God. Humans are stamped in the image of God. When the enemy looks at this earth, he sees these 
beings that have the image of God fallen, needing a savior. But when he sees those images, he can't stand those images. Why do you think abortion has taken the life of so many people? It's not merely because people have done that. It's because standing behind the actions of people, there's a dark silhouette of the enemy of their souls. He can't stand humanity. And we begin to think about it in these terms, as I said, taking a a wide angle. I think it's important for us to consider where this all started. What I'd like to do is, in a brief bit, I want to run through hundreds of years. If you take notes, uh, I apologize already. Uh, because you're going to be writing fast. Huh? You, good thing you can listen to this later. When we see the specific fall that we talked about and the deception that Adam and Eve entered into, one of the things that's specifically said in Genesis 3.15 that God meets that with a promise to send a redeemer. In other words, God promised to redeem. Well, then how exactly he's going to do that? He's going to do it through a redeemer. Now, I don't know what the enemy is thinking, but I think I can piece together what the plan is going to be. If God says in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to send a redeemer, if I'm the enemy of humanity, I'm looking for that redeemer. See, the redeemer is going to, he's going to do away with them. He's going to have an offspring that comes through Adam and Eve. And it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The idea is, is that you'll crush his head. And we know from Romans 16, 20, that Paul thought this was the enemy because it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. First John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So God specifically has a plan to destroy the enemy. The enemy knows this. So what do you think the enemy is now focused on doing? I've got to keep the Redeemer from coming. And understand, if this is a poker game, what the stakes are. If Satan at any point can outwit God or outmaneuver God, To keep the enemy or keep the redeemer from coming. Guess who can lay claim to being the creator God of the universe? Satan. In other words, if you beat God in his mind, you can lay claim to being God. So immediately here we have in a human sense of thinking this through... We have this match between the almighty, and that's a good clue because he's almighty, and the created angel who wants to be the God of the universe. And immediately we have, God says, okay, I'm going to send a redeemer and he is going to crush your head. Immediately, if you're his enemy, you focus on where this redeemer is coming. And specifically, he says, I'm going to send through an offspring. And that's exactly what we have in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. The first thing that the enemy seeks to do when it comes to the tactic of opposing God is he begins to confuse the people as it relates to how do we relate to God. Very quickly, when Cain and Abel are born, it's interesting because it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and gave and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. 
So that's interesting. When she says, I've gotten with the help of, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's an unusual phrase. Why does she say that? Because Adam and Eve were told, I'm going to send a redeemer. And when the redeemer, this man is born, she says, the Lord is kind and gracious. He has given me a son. And the enemy immediately begins to track. Could this be the one? Could this be the one who's coming after me? Then in the next verse, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, what's interesting about this, now you have Cain and Abel. If you look at their lives, you'll see really a framework for two basic religions in this world. Two basic ways to relate. Two basic ways that people operate. One is based on trust. One is the base based on effort. If you know the story, you can read it later. 1 through 12. Cain works for his food. He invests in the garden. He invests in his vegetables and the produce. He's proud of it. He's excited about it. Look at what my hands have produced. But God had must have told them, this is what I expect of you. I expect for you to bring an animal sacrifice that eventually would started to picture what Christ would be one day. Abel believed that. Abel did that. Cain did not trust the Lord. He trusted in himself. And what do we know about Cain and Abel? The enemy inspired Cain to kill Abel. We know that because in the Gospels it's recorded in John 8 that the enemy was a murderer from the beginning. Seeing Abel trusting God, he must have thought that's the Redeemer. So he inspires Cain to kill Abel. The problem is this. In Genesis chapter 5, 1, all of a sudden we see somebody else raised up whose name was Seth. Seth means substitute. We start to see this substitute idea coming in. And the enemy must have thought there's no way that I can kill every single person who comes up. Because what did God do? He counteracted by sending Cain away. From isolating Cain so he couldn't be around Seth. But what Satan tried to do is inspire Cain and the people that came from Cain to reject God. And by the time we find ourselves in Genesis 6, Satan had corrupted 6 or 9. He had corrupted all humanity. So that he seeks to then unite humanity against God by having a common language to stand against God. And the evil at this point gets so God counter. And so indifferent at this point, a new story starts to emerge. But something happens that's unique and different at this point. God begins to reveal and make his promise through a redeemer, through a people. No longer generally, but now very specifically. Do you see how God is saying, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to tell you my plan. Take your best shot. And the enemy's doing that. Throughout the first chapters of Genesis, he's making moves, God counteracts it. Making moves, God counteracts it. He's sending a redeemer, and it's as if the redeemer is getting closer and closer and closer. By the time we get to Genesis 15, God reveals his plan to the life of, of Abraham. What does Abraham do? He trusts. And he moves, and God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham and all of his offspring after that. What is the basis of that covenant? Trust. 
going to trust. But if you know anything about the life of Abram, he doesn't trust perfectly. So he can't be the redeemer, but the redeemer is going to come through him. And matter of fact, it's an unconditional covenant that God is going to send the Redeemer through him. We know that from Genesis 15, 1 through 20. By the time we get to Genesis 17, 1 through 8, God says this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Immediately, we have this same idea of offspring here. So now the enemy begins to localize on the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Have you ever wondered why the Jewish people have been so hunted throughout time and history? Some people want you to believe, well, it's because they're bad people. Uh, Some people would want you to think because they're crooks, because they're in charge of the banking system. You know, if you've been involved in any of that. I'm not dismissing any of the, the bad things that people may have done. The reason why the, the enemy hates Jewish people is because God chose to use them. That's why he hates them. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it for a second. The silhouette that's standing behind the, the Holocaust is not so much Hitler. He's responsible. It's the enemy. He can't stand the Jewish people for through the Jewish people the Redeemer came. Back to the idea here. By the time we enter into Genesis 49, so we've seen Abraham specifically as the target, his offspring. It's going to be an everlasting covenant. The enemy has got to stop this. Can't have an everlasting covenant. I've got to stop this somehow. By the time we get to Genesis 49, 8 through 10, he starts beginning to speak to Judah, the specific tribe within Israel, Judah, and says this in verse 10 of Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So we've got this narrowing down. This redeemer is going to come and this ruler is going to come through the tribe, the grouping of Judah. Then we see in Genesis 35, 12, Jacob specifically, an offspring coming from you localized in Judah. 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 5. These are the last words of David. David is from the tribe of Judah. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. David knows that the coming Redeemer is going to come through his line, Judah, and specifically through his line after him. It's going to be everlasting. He says in Psalm 89, Verse 36, his offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. The Lord says, I'm going to move through David and his offspring is going to be faithful. He's going to rule and is going to be there like the sun and the moon, always present. So the question would be throughout all of this, the enemy is seeking to keep this redeemer from coming. Do you remember what happened when Jesus Christ was born? Herod tried to kill all the kids two years and younger. Do you think that was Herod's idea? In one sense it was. But in another sense, there was a silhouette that was standing behind Herod. I've got to keep him from coming. I cannot allow the Redeemer to show up. If the Redeemer shows up, it's a completely different ballgame. But if I can stop him, 
then I can lay claim to be the ruler of the universe. What does God do? Counteracts it by sending Joseph and Mary down into Egypt. And when they come up out of Egypt, it's almost as if the plan of the enemy works to the benefit of God because he's the Almighty. As he comes out of Egypt, there's a picture of Israel coming out of Egypt. The idea of someone who's going to redeem Israel. As God redeemed Israel out of Egypt before, he's ultimately going to do this through this little baby. Do you see how that works? Do you see how God is establishing a track record that you can trust him? That the enemy cannot thwart his plan. And when Jesus Christ lives, as you look through his life, there's at least two different occasions in which Jesus walks through the crowds. They try to kill Christ and he walks through the crowds. How does he walk through the crowds? Is it it like a magic trick? No. His time had not yet come. No matter what the enemy wants to do, he cannot do. So when we find ourselves in the life of Christ, before his ministry starts, right after he's baptized, and yet before it happens, there needs to be a showdown. What is the showdown? Jesus has to show that he will trust the Lord in the way that Adam and Eve didn't, in the way all the people of Israel didn't, in which no one has ever done. And so that's where, when we find ourselves in this passage, he was led into the wilderness For 40 days being tempted by the devil. He is tempted by comfort, but he's tempted to believe himself. Now, how do we think about this? It says he ate nothing in Luke 4 during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So for 40 days, this redeemer has shown up. For 40 days, he's being accused. He is being thrashed about. Thoughts are being uh, lobbed at him dis- to disbelieve the father. Don't believe him. He's put you here. Can you believe he's put you here? Look at where you're at. Look at the people you're with. They're ignorant people. I've got them in my hands. I can turn the crowds however I want. You really think you can do this? And for 40 days, it's an absolute barrage. The enemy is completely unsuccessful. He can't turn them. And when we get to the end of these 40 days, it says, because he ate nothing, he was hungry. Now, if there's ever an underestimated statement uh, in the Bible, it would be that. At the end of 40 days, what is Satan trying to get Jesus to do? In his humanity, Jesus has put off the independent use of his attributes. Doesn't mean for one moment he's not God. But he has got to walk in our shoes as a human, not calling on his own powers of divine. In order for him to make up for the ground Adam lost, Israel lost, all of us have lost, by trusting ourselves, he has to trust the Father. And he cannot rely on himself. In a real way, he's got to do what we say. He's got to trust God, his heavenly Father. This is the proving ground For this time. He eats nothing and he's hungry. Then the devil comes and says in verse 3. If you are the son of God. Doesn't this sound eerily similar. To Genesis 2. Did God really say. I think that's really interesting. If you are the son of God. In other words. Prove it. Show me what you're made of. 
That's exactly what temptation is. It brings out what's in you. And he's pouring it on. And he could have chosen a lot of different ways to tempt Christ. But he chooses this way. Why? Because he knows when it comes to humanity. And specifically Christ in this situation. Who wouldn't want to reach for comfort? 40 days in the wilderness? Oh, that's the ticket. Let's go for comfort. If you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now what's interesting about that is he doesn't pick a command to break. In other words, he doesn't pick one of the commandments. He doesn't do that. He picks something that Jesus has in his identity every right to do as far as his power. Because he's God. Now, does he, making stone bread, piece of cake. Not a problem at all for God. I mean, look around, after all. Made the world. Not a problem. But it is a problem if you're going to represent humanity. If you're called to trust the Father, because Adam didn't, and Israel didn't, and no one has. So I've got to trust the Father. If I don't have food... It's because the Lord doesn't want me to have food. I trust him. Jesus answered. Deuteronomy 8.3 It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Notice how Jesus uses the scripture to offset the temptation. That is so huge. Jesus trusts the Father, trusts the way they're supposed to see the Father. And so because he trusts him, he doesn't look to himself. He doesn't look to his own resources because he trusts him. You see that in your situation. In your situation of comfort, if I only had this, my life would be better. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. You have God. If you don't have that, it's because you're not supposed to have that. The problem is when we go, no, 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 I deserve that. You see the temptation? And all of a sudden we start looking for something else to satisfy. We start looking for another arrangement, some material possession, maybe a relationship. If I only had that person in my life, man, my life would be great. You know, it was always amazing. My father, I remember we were watching TV when I was young and we were seeing some story about some Hollywood personality that had broken up. And my dad He said, it's always amazing. The most beautiful people seem to not be able to be satisfied by the other beautiful people in this world. Meaning that the issue isn't if I just had that person, I'd be satisfied. No, 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 that's the problem. You're never going to be satisfied because the object that you look to for satisfaction can never deliver on it unless it's God. God is the only thing. Your heart is looking to trust something like the eye of Sauron. And if it doesn't land on God in Christ, you'll never be satisfied. Never. And when you land on him, you have to say, you are enough for me. The disciples show up after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is talking about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Strange moment. Everybody else splits. He says, are you going to leave too? What did the disciples say? Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, we don't know everything about what you're saying. We're, we're, we're not tracking really well. All we know is this. 
You're the object of our affection. We need to trust you. That's exactly what Jesus does here. He says, listen, enemy, uh, I'm not looking. I'm not here to satisfy my own self, my own comfort. The Lord will give it to me. By his word, I live. Man should not live on bread alone. I don't look for bread to be my source of joy and comfort. I don't look for an object. I look for my father. I think that's incredibly important for us. If the enemy tested Jesus in this area of comfort, he's coming for you. And the beauty of it is this. If you've trusted in Christ, Christ was treated as if he had sinned so that you can be treated as if you're righteous. Meaning that when you stumble, and you will stumble in this area, that you can say, thank you, Lord, that you have paid for my lack of trust. Thank you, Jesus, that you live perfectly. So that if I trust in you, I've placed my hope in you, I'm saved. So now help me to live up to that. Not to perform to get salvation. That's a lie. Jesus is the only one the Father would accept. But as you trust in Christ, now you seek to honor him. And know, as you trust in him, and don't look for comfort in other things in life, but look for him to be the object of your affection, you'll be able to stand up and recognize when the enemy is trying to deceive you to see something else is worth following. The band is coming up. I want to ask a few questions. We're looking at the area of comfort today and two other areas in the upcoming weeks. But this is the proving ground. Temptation. This is where you discover who you trust. So I'd just like you to think about this in your own life as we've kind of dug through this subject. First question, how does a desire for comfort manifest in the temptation or temptations that you face? Maybe it's in parenting. Maybe it's materially, the temptation to get ahead so you cut corners, you're deceptive. Because you see that materially, if you get ahead, comfort is something you desire. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's compromise. You don't want to be the bad guy. So therefore, you kind of go along with the crowd. You don't speak up when you should. Why? Because your goal is comfort. You don't like opposition. I understand that. But in that moment, who are you trusting? If you're trusting in yourself, you stay quiet when you should speak up. But if you trust in the Lord, you go, I'm just going to trust the Lord and say, hey, I think that's wrong. Don't do that. Don't treat that person that way. You see, and in that way, you're finding your joy in what God says is true. You're finding your joy in that, not in other people patting you on the back. Do you see how that works? We're going to see more of that in the coming weeks. But where does your temptation specifically relate? And how does comfort, what you get out of it, fueling that? You need to cut that off. Second question, what is the role of Scripture in this area of your life? As we said last week, the only way for you to really get around on this is to inform your affections of who God is and what He's called you to. And we're able to bring truth to bear when you're tempted. Then you can trust. No, I trust what he says. So that's what I'm going to do. I don't understand everything, but that's what I'm going to, I'm going to trust. Why? Because he's my joy. He's my hope. 
I'm gonna, not going to even trust sometimes what I feel to be true. I'm going to trust what he says. Third question. In what way or ways will you work to develop a trust in God instead of a pursuit of comfort? You can't sit back. You can't put it in neutral. You have got to shift gears and where you find yourself inclined, leaning toward comfort. You see kind of the eye of Sauron where you're searching in your life and everybody's different. You're searching in your life. What is going to satisfy me when your eye lands on certain things? That when you look back, even when I spoke about it, you thought about that thing. You need to find out what does the scripture say about it. So that when that comes, when it lands on that, and you go, that's where my comfort is going to be. That's where I'm going to find joy. That's really going to satisfy me. You come back with scripture and go, no, it's not. Because this is what God's word says. This is who God is. I can't believe that for one moment. Why? Because it's not true. And as you inform your life, and as you learn to discipline your life, instead of the eye of Sauron landing on something in the land, you'll find yourself looking to God. You'll find yourself walking by faith. You'll find yourself trusting God. And as you do that, and do it, and do it, you'll grow stronger. You'll grow up. That's really what the Christian life is. And we need one another in order to do that well. And that's why we have a church. That we encourage one another in the battle. Encourage one another in the journey. We're all at different places. We're on the same journey. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Let's pray and ask God to help us in this regard. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the people that are around us. Uh, Your idea is the church. You purchased the church. It's your idea. So that when we trust in you, then we learn how to trust you better during times like this, during times of interaction, that we'd be encouraged. This place, the church, is the place in which people can learn how to live life with you at the center. There's not another organization or institution on the face of this planet that has been designed specifically and uniquely by you to help us learn how to trust you more. And so we know the enemy hates it. May we resist the temptation for comfort to to sleep in, to miss days like this, to not invest in relationships because we need them. To resist any other material, relational excuse that we have in which we find something more valuable than you. We measure ourselves in this way. We find ourselves wanting because we are a fickle people. We are a people that trust ourselves all the time. Thank you for the gospel that has rescued us from that. And we pray that you continue encourage us on. Do what's necessary to help us to trust you more because in trusting you, we find our joy because that's exactly where we see Christ did it. And in entrusting you, we're able to face the temptation that the enemy wants to throw at us so that we, at the end of the day, might stand in the throng of people and praise your name. For you are good and you are great. You have saved us from our sins. And may you help us to walk in faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.